It is almost impossible to exaggerate just how invested we human beings are in being good. We want desperately, I think, to be a good person. Sometimes being good means being morally good, someone with a kind heart and impeccable impulse control. Other times, being good means fulfilling social expectations to a T. Being, say, a good parent, a good friend, a good neighbor, a good citizen. And still other times, goodness serves as a stand-in for competence and success. We long to be a good student, a good candidate, a good employee, a good leader. Being good, or trying, to be good, at least, is so basic to how we are in the world that I suspect we seldom notice it. And when we struggle to be good, when we fail to do it right, by others' definitions or by our own, we often point the, figure, the finger not at the goodness game we're perpetually playing itself, but at anyone and everyone else. We may get angry at others for sabotaging us, for making it harder for us to be good. We may also blame, shame, and attack ourselves for being bad players of the goodness game. Too weak, too indulgent, too lazy, too meddlesome, too insert shortcoming here. I invite you to think for a moment about the last time you messed up or fell short. A time when you encountered a person, situation, idea, event, conflict, or relationship that you could not manage or control. A time when it was hard to be good. How did you react to this humiliation? With aggression toward others, in other words, Anger, maybe with aggression toward yourself, in other words, guilt and shame, with a little bit of each, maybe. And what then was the outcome? More often than not, I think whether we guilt ourselves or rail against others, we end up channeling our willpower and determination into building a stronger, better self. A self who at last can be in charge and in control and good. This stubborn, willful reaction, two steps back, one determined step forward, becomes a pattern for many of us, including in our spiritual lives. The prize of the goodness game religious edition is holiness, being esteemed worthy of the blessings of God's favor, worthy of salvation. Now, I want to explore today how God refuses to play the goodness game with us. But first, I want to say a word about how we treat the Hebrew Bible, from which we get today's reading from Numbers that Andrew just read. Because it's important to monitor our use of sacred texts for anti-Semitic undertones. During the past few weeks, Reverend Catherine and I have been sharing some of our favorite stories 
from the Hebrew Bible, traditionally known as the Old Testament. There's a long-standing strain of anti-Semitism in Christian churches that insists that the New Testament is superior to the Old Testament. I'm sure you've heard the stereotypes that prop up this prejudice. The Old Testament God is vengeful, wrathful, and the New Testament God is loving, forgiving. The Old Testament is about law and obedience, while the New Testament is about grace and freedom. These stereotypes have done enormous harm by painting the central but not the only text of Jewish tradition as harsh and outdated in comparison to the new and supposedly improved, morally superior Christian scriptures. The fact is that right around the time that Jewish Jesus followers were writing the Gospels and the letters in our New Testament to tell of Jesus and to tell about his renewal movement within Judaism, there were other Jews who were hard at work writing their own texts in response to the fall of the Second Temple, which was a shattering event in Jewish history and it happened in about 70 CE. These Jewish foreparents set off a long and distinguished tradition of commentary on the Hebrew Bible as Jewish sages tried to find the relevance of this scripture to their communities, to their own time. Taken together, many of these writings, these commentaries, form the Talmud, which is a vast and erudite and fascinating collection of texts that exemplifies the living tradition of Judaism. So our Christian scriptures reinterpret the Hebrew Bible just as later Talmudic texts do, because the Hebrew Bible is enormously complex. There is no single monolithic conception of God among the many voices in Hebrew scripture, just as there is no single unified understanding of God in our later Christian texts. And our later Christian texts in no way have a monopoly on love, forgiveness, or what we would call grace. We need, as Christians, in a society where hate crimes are on the rise, including against our Jewish siblings, we need to speak up to challenge the lie that Jewish tradition is about following the rules of the goodness game, while Christians are free under the, law, under, uh, the gospel, free from the law to live in a land of grace. After all, we know how human it is to play the goodness game to seek goodness, courting anger and guilt when we fall short and asserting our own stubborn will so as to regain control at all costs. And we can see in today's story of Balaam and the donkey from the book of Numbers, from the Hebrew Bible, just how tender, forgiving, and even humorous God is as God breaks us out of the goodness game and opens our eyes to the transformative power of grace. So, to set the scene. The Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for nearly a generation since God led them out of slavery in Egypt. 
And now they were arriving in the land of Moab, which is across the Jordan River from Jericho. After all this time, nearly 40 years, they are approaching the promised land. It is almost in sight. But the land they were in wasn't empty. The Moabites lived there. And the king of Moab, Balak, he is afraid that the Israelites, who are so numerous, might overwhelm the Moabites. And so, contemplating an attack to drive the Israelites out of this territory, Balak devises a plan to give his troops the upper hand in battle. He will employ a traveling professional seer, or diviner, or fortune teller, essentially, named Balaam, ordering Balaam to wield his well-known divination powers to curse the Israelites. That curse will surely undermine the Israelites' defenses and ensure a Moabite victory. My hunch is that Balaam is basically a free agent whose spiritual services were for sale to the highest bidder. Andrew read excerpts of the first part of the story uh, because, in fact, Balak's servants visit Balaam on multiple occasions to try to hire him for this divine takedown of Israel, the Israelites. The story is a little incoherent here, which is part of why we skipped it, and we'll try to summarize. Probably that multiple oral traditions told around the campfire about Balaam and the donkey had been stitched together. Uh, but the gist I get is this. God twice visits Balaam in his dreams and forbids Balaam from going with Balak's servants. Yet the way Balaam then refuses the servant's offer of employment seems like a subtle play for a higher commission, a prettier penny for his services. Eventually, God does agree for Balaam to go with the servants, so long as Balaam only does what God tells him to do. And so, with the promise of a hefty paycheck on the horizon, Balaam says, Sure, God, I'll do your will. And he sets off to see Balak. This feels a bit like when we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer, often without really thinking about it. As if we can keep playing the goodness game without giving anything up to God, without curbing our own will to be good, all the while feeling a little more holy because we just said a lofty prayer. Well, Balaam, the esteemed religious specialist, he is a master player of the goodness game. And God knows this, I think. God knows that Balaam has designs on cursing the Israelites in exchange for making bank. And so, God intervenes. As Balaam travels down the road, riding his donkey, God dispatches an angel to stand right in the middle of the road, wielding a sword to oppose Balaam to stand against him. Thing is, Balaam is oblivious to the way that his willful agenda is set against the will of God. And so his pride and stubbornness is such that Balaam doesn't see the angel at all. But lo and behold, Balaam's donkey, that most stubborn of animals, she sees the angel and she veers off the road into a field. Balaam reacts much like 
we might. When someone foils our designs on goodness or points out that we aren't as good as we seem, he lashes out, striking his poor donkey until she corrects course. Then the angel of God appears by the wall of a vineyard, and the donkey again veers off course, this time scraping Balaam's foot against the wall. And Balaam, again, is diverted from his designs on goodness, and again he lashes out, striking the donkey. And finally, the angel appears in front of a very narrow pass, leaving that hapless donkey nowhere to turn, left or right. And what does she do? She lays down right under Balaam. That's it, she says, I'm done, I'm so done. <laughs> this enrages Balaam, who by now has been thoroughly humiliated, sent off course by some unruly donkey, and he strikes her with his staff. This is full-on rage. Maybe we know this kind of rage. When we're raging at anyone or anything getting in the way of our goodness, Balaam rages at anyone and anything getting in the way of his being the good diviner he has hired, he has been hired to be. But then the emotional landscape of the story shifts. And God decides to inhabit the body of that much maligned donkey for a minute. God opens her mouth, and the donkey accosts Balaam for his anger. What have I done to you? Why are you hitting me? She says. You'd think that a talking donkey would snap Balaam out of his addiction, his obsession with being good. But no, Balaam doesn't miss a beat. He is so proud that he doesn't stop to consider whom he's hurting in his quest for goodness. You have made a fool of me, he exclaims with murderous rage. Maybe, maybe we can relate to this humiliation, this anger, when it seems like the world is dead set against us, mocking us when all we want to do is be good. I mean, who likes to be made a fool of? Anyway, and the donkey replies, turning it back on Balaam, Hey, am I not your faithful donkey, which you have ridden all your life to this day? Come on, have I ever treated you like this? No. <laughs> Filled with divine wisdom, this old donkey gets Balaam to confront his own powerlessness. Because make no mistake, for all his swagger and his pride, Balaam is powerless before God. We, too, are powerless before God. We are powerless always and forever, powerless to earn God's love by playing the goodness game. Our willful insistence that we can earn security, esteem, and power by just being good enough. That, that pride of ours, it ignores God's claim on our lives. And when we pay lip service to God's claim on our lives while really chasing after prophets and picture-perfect Christmas cards and likes on social media, we veer away from God's longing for us to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. Richard 
Rohr, a Christian contemplative and leader, encourages us to pray not so much for God's will to be done, but for our own daily divine donkey diversion. Rohr suggests that we pray for one good humiliation a day. That's one time a day when we are reminded that we are, indeed, as the Apostle Paul would later put it, fools for Christ. One time a day when our designs on goodness, all our best laid plans, are frustrated. Now this may seem like an absurd prayer, especially an absurd prayer when we are already off course, scraping up against disappointment, if not flat-out collapsing under the exhaustion of the goodness game to begin with. Yet notice what this humiliation makes possible for Balaam. His eyes are open. He falls down, prostrating himself, admitting he can't save himself, he can't earn God's love, can't achieve the goodness that he's been chasing after. The honor that he has been wheeling and dealing to possess. And Balaam admits that he has turned away from the God who met him on the road. And that his obsession with the goodness game has separated him from God's will for him. He even offers to give up his commission entirely. To forego the whole thing. To forego the prophets and the prestige waiting for him in Moab. And to just go home. Instead, notice what the angel does. The angel encourages Solomon to keep on going, to go right into the thick of his temptation and to speak truth to power. He invites Solomon to let God guide him and guard him. And indeed, that's what Balaam does. Balaam goes to Balak. This is the passage after we finish reading today. He goes to Balak, and three times, instead of cursing the Israelites like he'd been paid to, he blesses them. And with that blessing, the Israelites pass unharmed through Moab and on to the Promised Land. Our humiliations can become opportunities to reflect to be honest with ourselves and each other, to be vulnerable in allowing others to see our weakness, our imperfection, our powerlessness. For when we are vulnerable, when we are open, and God, that's when God can work through our willingness, that's when God can work to bless and not to curse. God works through our willingness not to send us home to isolation, but to bring us into community, into just and compassionate relationship with our neighbors. One good humiliation a day can transform us from seekers of goodness to givers of grace. One good humiliation a day can reteach us our worth. It can lead us to rely on God's goodness and not our own. One good humiliation a day can teach us to be humble, neither too big nor too little, 
too proud or too ashamed to respond to God's loving, healing will. And so, may we be on the lookout for our one good humiliation a day, our daily divine donkey diversion. Because it's God in disguise, and it is a total game changer.